Well, good morning. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark again, chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. Uh, And as you turn there, uh, I want to just begin by discussing something that perhaps we don't or take for granted uh, oftentimes, and that is the fact that we are living and find ourselves living in the midst of a centuries-long war. Our enemies are invisible, but this brutal conflict manifests itself on the battlefields of daily life. Our lives are assaulted, and they're assaulted by the forces of evil more than we realize. And the casualties of this war are great. Yes, Satan, demons, and the powers of darkness are real. But our Western enlightened minds struggle to believe this. Perhaps there's a few that maybe believe it a little too much. But most of us deny it. I found it interesting what C.S. Lewis wrote in the preface to his book, The Screwtape Letters. He said this, There are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Now, though Christians may acknowledge the existence of so-called devils with our minds, I think most function as if really they're only in our imaginations. Consider the last time that you talked with a friend, where you discussed the presence of evil in your life, where you talked about it as an active force in your daily life. Well, here in Mark chapter 5, and really many other places in the Gospels, Jesus confronts real spiritual forces of evil in the form of unclean spirits. In Mark chapter 3, when he was earlier casting out unclean spirits, that led to accusations of himself being possessed by the devil. And at that point, Jesus spoke about this kingdom of darkness. He spoke of it as a real thing and Satan as a real being. It's not a small militia of darkness, but a kingdom with forces that are strong and strategic and quite structured in their order. Now, in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul spoke about this war and spoke about this warfare. And he said, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For, he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's a war that we find ourselves in the middle of. Now, Colossians 2 does tell us that Jesus won the war. That on the cross, He put His enemies to open shame. But at the same time, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus, though now ruling, is still in the process of subjecting these authorities and these powers. In other words, the war is won, but the battle 
continues to wage and the forces of evil still terrorize our lives. So in our series titled Reintroducing Jesus, I want to spend our time this morning talking about um, Jesus as Lord of the visible storms like we saw last week, but also Lord of the invisible storms that we have going on in our hearts. And to do that, I'm going to focus on what really the forces of darkness are and, and what they do to assault us and really what Jesus does to defeat these enemies and to redeem us. So if you'd look with me at Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read the first 20 verses. God's Word says this, They came to the other side of the sea, through the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, and not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. And night and day among the tombs and on the mountain, he was always crying out with, and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, well, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. And now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and the country, and the people came to see what was that happened, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you and how he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Well, let's explore what we learn in this passage about Jesus and about the kingdom of darkness. Now, this is the only time that really Jesus travels to the eastern shore of Galilee. And east is an interesting theme in the Old Testament and really throughout the Bible. When the rebellious second son of Adam and Eve, Cain, when he was separated from the presence of God because of the sin he committed, he settled east of Eden. And the Tower of Babel, which was this building and uh, dedicated to the glory of men, was built. It was built in the east. And even the tabernacle of God, the temple of God, faced east, meaning you had to walk west in order to enter it. 
You see, the east, as you kind of unpack this in the Old Testament, it's see repeated, is it's this idea to move away from God's presence, to move away from His blessing, to move away from His light and into the darkness. And so Jesus, if you remember, He moves away, if you will, teaching parables about the kingdom of God, goes through a storm and onto the eastern shore of the kingdom of darkness. He steps out of the boat and he's immediately confronted by a demon-possessed man. And so it's important that we take some time to discuss kind of all things demons and angels because there's a lot of confusion about that. So to be clear, in the beginning, like the beginning beginning, that in creation at some point God created beings called angels. We don't know how many angels he created. The Bible describes there being thousands upon thousands. The Bible teaches that angels are spiritual beings. They have moral judgment, great power, great intelligence, but they are without earthly bodies of their own. Now, as created beings, the Bible teaches that angels have God-given limitations and and God-directed expectations. They can be in one place spiritually or physically, but only one place at a time. They know a lot about a lot, but they're not all-knowing. They have seen a lot and they see a lot, but not omnisciently. And they can influence the physical universe, but only so far as they're carrying out God's purposes. Now, The book of Hebrews Hebrews teaches that angels are supposed to worship Jesus. They're supposed to serve His disciples according to the Father's direction. And that the angels rejoice at the plan of redemption and they eagerly wait to see it fulfilled. So in summary, angels love God, they serve God, they worship God, they represent God, they often speak for God and they fight for God. And then we have demons. And demons are evil angels. They are angels who rebelled against God, and instead of working for God, they seek to disturb and disrupt or otherwise destroy God and His people. After C.S. Lewis wrote the Screwtape Letters, or talked about it a lot and then wrote it, he was asked about devils, because it spoke a lot about demons and devils. And so he was asked, do you really believe in devils? And this is what C.S. Lewis wrote. Now if by the devil you mean a power opposite to God and like God, self-existent from all eternity, well the answer is certainly no. There is no uncreated being except God. God has no opposite. The proper question is whether I believe in devils. I do. That is to say, I believe in angels, and I believe that some of them, by the abuse of their free will, have become enemies to God and to us. These we may call devils. They don't differ in nature from good angels, but their nature is depraved. Devil is the opposite of angel, only as bad man is the opposite of good man. So, in summary, what you see is that these demons... These fallen angels, they hate God, they deny God, they mock God, they lie about God, and they fight against God and His people. 
And they are led by a very prideful and powerful fallen angel, sometimes called Beelzebub, sometimes called Lucifer, sometimes called Satan. And these fallen angels, though they respect the role of God, they reject the rule of God. And they ultimately fight to reign in his place. That is what we know about demons. Not everything, but enough, hopefully. And so as Jesus steps on the shore, he's immediately confronted by a demon-possessed man, an unnamed man who has an unclean spirit. We learn he's actually possessed by many unclean spirits. And by possession, I mean that a demonic spirit, a fallen angel, not a ghost of someone who has died, but a demonic spirit has spiritually indwelled the person bodily, and now they control their physical behavior, what they say, what they do. And Mark's detailed description here in Mark chapter 5 of this demonically controlled man is very dark and it's very disturbing. He writes that this man who is possessed by an unclean spirit has what amounts to superhuman strength. That he cannot be controlled, though many have tried. If you read how he describes him, he emphasizes several times that no one could bind him. That not even with a chain could they bind him. Though he had been shackled many times, he had broken the chains to pieces that no one, it says, had the strength to subdue him. No one had the strength to subdue him. So this possessed man spends his time literally running around the hills and the mountains and the wilderness naked, not just crying, but howling, using rocks to bruise or cut himself day and night. And so because he behaves literally like a wild animal, more than likely people treat him like one. See, the first and foremost characteristic of this man, one worthy of being stated two times, is that he lived among the tombs. He lived in a graveyard. Literally, he was a man dwelling, abandoned and alone in the place of death. And we have to stop and wonder, how did... How did this man become this way? He's unnamed throughout the whole text. But what is his story? Where is his family? See, when we read these kind of strange accounts in the gospel, I think we're often uh, tempted to dismiss them as unique, very disconnected from our life in 2020. And while I don't believe there's a devil behind every bush, it is certainly dangerous to believe that the kingdom of darkness doesn't exist or that it's inactive. See, granted, I think few may experience demonic possession like this, though I have met many who have. Many of us are or will experience either subtle or severe demonic oppression. We may not experience demonic possession, but I do believe 
that many of us experience demonic oppression. If we're li really, literally living in a war, if the kingdom of darkness is organized and strategic and attacking and assaulting us, then we have to believe that many of us are demonically oppressed. Some of it may be obvious to us. I think often addictions and compulsions and obsessions and, and some even mental illness can manifest itself in ways similar to the possession of this man. Like, this man is a tangible picture of what the darkness can do to anyone. In other words, you don't have to be possessed to experience life like the demoniac. A life full of isolation. A life full of self-harm. A life that is surrounded by death in every sense of the word. Now, the Apostle Paul warned us in that passage I read out of Ephesians 6 to stand firm against the schemes of the devil because we should be aware of how he works. He tells us, like, we should be aware. We know how he works. You see, if nothing else, Satan and demons, they're, they're uh, expert psychologists, expert historians. They have, over thousands of years, studied mankind. And our great enemy knows how to best attack us because he knows us very well. And his attacks are quite effective, but they're also quite predictable. Not only possession, right? But the kingdom of darkness consistently employs two particular strategies to oppress men and women. Now, Jesus has described in the Gospels elsewhere Satan as the father of lies. Satan is also called the accuser. So the father of lies and the accuser. And it's because these are two ways that he best assaults us. Not only, but two ways that he most effectively assaults us with lies and with accusations. He desires more than anything to bring dishonor to God. And so what does he do? He lies to us about sin. He tempts us to sin, making false promises. And more than that, he leverages our guilt when we give in to those sins. Leverages our guilt to, to keep us in shame from what we have done or what has been done to us. And he accuses us. And the hard part is, he often accuses us with truth. Truth that we might be ashamed of. About our failures. About our uncleanness. About our inadequacies. About our shortcomings. Now, we become oppressed even so far as to start acting like this man, isolated, harming ourselves, you know, everything around us surrounded by death, like we become like this, not because we listen to the kingdom of darkness. That's unavoidable. Temptation is unavoidable. Being accused, unavoidable. We don't become oppressed because we listen to those things. We become oppressed because we agree with what the kingdom of darkness is saying. And when those lies 
or those accusations become the governing force in our lives, what do we do? We hide ourselves from people. We hurt ourselves. And we often kill every good thing in our life. Death comes to our relationship with God. Death comes to relationship with ourselves. Death comes to relationships with one another. And in time, agreeing with those lies and those accusations from the kingdom of darkness begin to deform us into a different person without a name. Someone without an identity, surviving in a world of death. That's how the kingdom of darkness attacks us. We read stuff like possession, we're like, well, that's never gonna happen. I assure you, you will be lied to and you will be accused by the kingdom of darkness. And the question is whether you will agree with those lies and be governed by them or whether you will combat them with the truth of God. And this is exactly what Jesus does. See, when the demoniac sees Jesus, when he sees Jesus, the man whom no one had strength to control falls down at Jesus' feet. The man who who couldn't be bound with chains, who would break them, the man who couldn't be controlled falls down at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Truly, for those who are in Christ Jesus, we have nothing to fear from the kingdom of darkness. The demons within this man cry out to Jesus, and they say three different things that are really interesting. The first thing he says is, what have you to do with me? What what do you have to do with me? This sounds like a question, but it's better understood as a statement like, leave me alone. Why are you bothering me? This is not some surprised appeal. This is really an attack. The one possessed by a demon, the one oppressed by sin and governed by accusation and lies, you know what they want more than anything? To be left alone. Don't bother me. Leave me alone. Second thing that this demon says, interestingly enough, they rightly identify Jesus as Son of the Most High God. And curiously, as we saw last week, the demons answer the question that the disciples asked after he quieted the storm. Who is this guy? They arrive on the shore and the demon says, this is the Son of the Most High. The demons know exactly who Jesus is. Now, this identifying statement is actually another veiled threat to expose Jesus for who he really is. Which with mankind, men and women, exposure or threat of exposure is one of the most successful strategies of the kingdom of darkness. Because guess what? Most of us have something we want to hide. Most of us have shame. Things that we don't want anyone to know for fear of rejecting us for who we truly are. We don't want to be exposed. But of course, Jesus, the sinless one, doesn't have anything to hide or be ashamed of. So it doesn't work on him. But finally, the demons begin to beg Jesus, okay, so don't, don't torment us. Don't, don't, don't torment us. In the parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew, they actually say, have you come to torment us before 
The time, which is an interesting statement. See, demons know that their time is limited. The book of Revelation in chapter 12 tells us, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. What evil is this, right? Pure evil that wages a battle in a war that they cannot win. Satan's not interested in winning. He's only interested in destroying as much as he can before he himself is destroyed. In his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, reformer Martin Luther wrote these words, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God had willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Well, we see that the demons begin to beg Jesus to be sent into a herd of pigs nearby. And what does Jesus do? Well, if you see in the Gospel of Matthew, he speaks one little word. The Gospel of Mark says he gives permission. The Gospel of Matthew says he simply responded, go. It's comforting to know that demons cannot even hurt a pig without permission, but it's also somewhat disturbing to know that God gives his permission. Now thousands of demons flee this man and they possess thousands of pigs who are nearby and they immediately rush down a steep bank into the sea. And the Greek language implies that 2,000 pigs fall off this cliff one by one by one by one. What a scene that must have been. Jesus destroys a legion of the kingdom of darkness with a word. And seen as the Gospel of Mark was written largely to Romans. I wonder how a Roman centurion might read this story. Who is this Jesus who can destroy legions of spiritual forces? The display of Jesus' power is impressive. And it's right to, to see that, like, wow, Jesus is authoritative over sickness, and, and he's authoritative over creation, and he's authoritative over spiritual forces. Like, yes, that's all true. He is powerful. With one little word, he can fell an entire legion, thousands of demons. But I would suggest that it actually pales in comparison to the display of his love towards this one unnamed man. His actions speak so much more than one word. So let's just look at briefly three things that I think Jesus is saying to combat the lies of the enemy. First, we see Jesus 
know that out throughout the Gospels, especially in Mark, because it's so short and compact, we see that he's extremely intentional, meaning that he is, he's not spontaneous or random, but quite deliberate in every part of his ministry, every decision that he makes, right? He, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, goes exactly where he wants, exactly when he wants, and he connects with exactly who he wants at that time. He had instructed his disciples to get into the boat and to cross the sea. And in doing so, he intentionally and willfully and knowingly led them directly into a storm. The storm may have surprised these disciples, many of whom were fishermen. Had been in storms before, but it never surprised Jesus. And as we learned last week, there are all kinds of powerful lessons to learn from the storm. But there's one important one that I think we sometimes miss. And that is that Jesus took his disciples away from the crowds full of all kinds of of Jewish fans. He went across the Sea of Galilee deeper into the Gentile world. And he not only leads his disciples into scary storm, he he leads them into this dark-filled, death-filled place. And we see that sometimes the only way to get to, quote, the other side, where God wants you to be, is to go through a storm. And sometimes, Jesus actually takes you through that storm, yes, so your faith will be built, but actually so that you might be able to help someone else in a storm of their own. Think about this. If if Jesus and his disciple had not gone through the storm, if perhaps they'd even turned back, they may have missed an opportunity to minister to this unnamed man. So what we see is Jesus' loving movement toward this unnamed man, toward this nobody, is one that speaks truth against a lie that many of us believe, that I'm alone, that no one cares, that no one sees me. And Jesus says, I see you, and you're not alone. Now, That's not the only lie that that Jesus is confronting with truth, right? Like the story has this huge setting of uncleanness. And it provides all kinds of reasons, almost every reason that would keep a Jewish man like Jesus and Jewish disciples like he had from going to this place. Right? You have a man filled with an unclean spirit, right? A demon. He's living in an unclean place, literally with dead bodies around. He is surrounded by unclean animals, which pigs and pork is unclean in the eyes of the Jews. And he is in this unclean land, which is the Gentile land in the east. Now, according to biblical law, right, interaction with any one of these polluted elements required separation and purification. In other words, this is a place that no one would want to go. And everyone would have all kinds of good-sounding reasons to avoid it. And yet, Jesus doesn't hesitate to move in. This kind of love 
is Jesus speaking against the accuser who tells us things like, you're too unclean. Who tells us things like, you're a hopeless case. You're like an animal with instincts. You can't stop yourself. No one even wants to be near you. You're so gross. Those are lies that we all believe at different times. Those, that's the enemy keeping us in our shame. Truly, this man does represent someone who is enslaved by evil. And perhaps some of you feel that way. Does evil have as strong a grip on you as it seems to have on this man? Do you feel alone in that? Do you feel helpless in that? Do you feel completely enslaved and dirty and dead in that? Do you realize that Jesus can restore your life? That he isn't afraid of your darkness or your dirt? That he can actually save you with a word? And the word that you most desperately need to hear is not just stop it. Just stop. You're fine. But that Jesus loves you more than anyone ever could because he loves you knowing who you truly are and all that you have done. All the shame that you have you've never told anyone about. All the guilt that you hold that you've never exposed. Jesus knows it all. See, the enemy often accuses us with true things that we are genuinely ashamed of. And when we agree that that's who I am, we get governed by that. But Jesus offers you freedom. He offers you rescue. He offers you freedom from that shame because the Bible says when you are a sinner, that God demonstrated his love for you, that when you're a sinner, fully aware of how dirty and dark and broken and unclean you were, Christ died for you. So he speaks that truth into your darkness saying, I know you. I know you. And nothing is too unclean for me. You hear that? Nothing is too unclean for me. Wow, what a powerful truth. But there's one more that Jesus speaks. Can't end our time without talking about the pigs. It's a strange event. There's a legion of demons and that's upwards of several thousand, could be up to 6,000, just thousands of demons. And while he could cast each one, one by one, out, he instead sends all of them at one time into pigs. And these pigs fall into the sea, and they're drowned by the sea. It's an interesting, almost eschatological uh, picture of what happens at the end of Revelation when, when Satan and his minions are thrown into the lake of fire on the day of judgment. It's an interesting picture there. But some might think, look, what a waste of bacon. 
right? What, what, what a waste this is. Why, why this? Was this really necessary to do it this way? And if you approximate the cost of each pig just according to today's costs, probably each pig's around 250 bucks. I don't know, I'm not a farmer, but I was kind of looking up some things. And, but if we just use that number, that means that, that there was like half a million dollars taken away from these farmers. But you go, did he really take it away from the farmers? And by that I mean, let's not forget that according to John chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1 and many other passages, Jesus created all things. What does that mean? Uh, These are his pigs. These are his pigs. Truly, Jesus didn't need to agree to cast out the demons into these pigs. But in doing so, not only did he kind of display the breadth of his power, but I think we also see on display the depth of his love. Right, Jesus is radically generous, or as the song says, his love is extravagant. Jesus refuses to spare any expense. And by that I mean no cost is too high to save those he loves from the kingdom of darkness. And the blood of pigs is nothing compared to the blood of Christ. This is not merely the cost of our redemption. Right? We look at this man and go like, man, this, this man's redemption cost 2,000 pigs. Do you understand the cost of your redemption? The eternal weight and value of one drop of Christ's blood? Like this isn't just merely the cost of our redemption. You know what this is? This is the evidence of the depth of God's devotion. That those who, who listen to the lies, I, I, I'm not worth it. I'm not, I'm not worth it. Jesus says to you, I desire you. And there is nothing I won't pay to be with you. I will spare nothing, not even my life. God, oh, that's powerful. Well, as we conclude, know that in conquering the kingdom of darkness, Jesus goes into the darkest battlefield, enters into our brokenness, and he covers us with love. Now we see that Jesus does this at great cost to himself. That through his rejection, we are redeemed. This is what happens, right? The herdsmen go and tell the city what happened and it says the whole city comes out. And they see this man who was once a danger to himself and a danger to others completely restored and the text says in his right mind. And Mark says that they're afraid. They're too afraid to rejoice. They see what's happened. They see the pigs floating in the sea. They see the man who is free, who used to be naked, crying, and running around the hills. It's unclear exactly what they're afraid of, but perhaps maybe just something they can't explain. Or maybe they're afraid of Jesus and the dramatic changes that he brings to one's life. Because I think 
we all want to see good things happen, but we don't want to see it or experience it if it's going to cost us significantly, which it did this city. Truly, Jesus was not only there to love the demoniac, he actually loved the city as well. It was loving what he did. But they received it more of a loss than love. Truly, if we just take this as an example, it seems like materialism had come to dominate their world. So much so that the healing of this man took a back seat to the impact on their economy. The people of the city were, were just as oppressed by evil as this possessed man in many ways. But in the end, they chose their sin over salvation. They chose possessions over people. For perhaps a little bit of bacon, they reject Jesus. They reject His Lordship so they might rule themselves. And they literally beg Jesus to leave. And this simply reveals the truth that John 3, 16 through 18 tells us. Not the first half that God so loved the world, but the back half. We know it says God so loved the world that he gave his son, but that the back half says this, that he sent his son, the light of the world, but men loved darkness more than the light because their works were evil. So they beg him to leave. But the one whom Jesus saved, right? He returns and he begs that he can go with Jesus across the sea. Take me with you. And what happens? Jesus denies his request. And what does he tell him? To go home and tell your friends what the Lord has done for you. Jesus sends those that he saves. He restores so that we might restore he doesn't send this man to strangers. He doesn't send this man on some faraway mission. He doesn't tell him, go stand on street corners. He sends him home to reach his family, his friends, and his neighbors. Now, why would he do that? Because these are the ones that knew his story so well. These are the ones that had had a front row seat to his brokenness. These are the ones who knew exactly the depth of darkness that he had been in. And as one who knew who he was, they would be marveling, which they did, at who he'd become and what Christ had done in his life. I think of nothing else. We see without question that we all have a story to tell. We have a story to tell that takes us from death to life. A story of oppression to redemption. A story of who you were before Christ, who you are in Christ, and who are you becoming for Christ. Your responsibility and mine is to share that story. And it's to share the story with those you love most, beginning in your own homes, beginning with your friends, beginning with your neighbors. This is who I was in death. This is who I was in darkness. This was my story, and Jesus rewrote it. 
my prayers that we'll be inspired to do just that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for who you are. We know, Lord, that you have brought us out of the darkness. You have brought us out of the mud and the uncleanness and the dirt. You have brought us out of the sin of our story. And you have redeemed it and brought us life. Lord, we confess that we read stories about demonically possessed people and we dismiss that that could ever happen to us. And yet, Lord, we know that the kingdom of darkness is active and real and it is attacking us. It may not possess us, but without doubt it oppresses us and speaks lies to us and accuses us, Lord. Would you help us to stand firm, covered with the full armor of God, equipped with your truth? Would you remind us, Jesus, that that you see us? Would you remind us, Jesus, that you're willing to get dirty with us and that you spare no expense to be with us, that, Lord, you died on the cross that we might be saved? Not that we might just have a more improved life, but that we might have a new life. Thank you, Lord, not just for writing the story, but even for the darkness of our story, because in that setting and context, the beauty and the glory of what you have done is that much more marvelous. Give us the courage to share our story. Give us the courage to know our story. And give us the hope of what is yet to come. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.